The message is going to be over the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, which is really the essence of Christianity and one of the greatest sermons ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived. And so our, our focus today is going to be in Matthew 5. Um, mainly we're going to focus on the first and second Beatitude, but I'm going to read all of Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I'll wait for you to get there with me. Matthew 5, 1. <clears throat> now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. <clears throat> he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and uh, let's pray together as we open this sermon. Just once more. Holy Father, we've come before your throne today, Lord, that you might illumine our eyes in this text, O oh God, that you might shine light in our darkness Oh God, that you would be the very substance and center of our worship today. Um, Lord, I want to pray for Emilio as well as we just prayed for him. Lord, that you would, um, Lord, that you would heal him. Um, Lord, that you would perfect him. That you would, uh, you would sustain him. Lord, I also pray for uh, ears that are willing, and I know that by your grace alone, O oh God, can those who have ears hear what you have to say, and that you are merciful to let them hear, and you're merciful to allow them to receive the things that you want to reveal to them, God. And so I pray that, that we would have a willingness of ears and a willingness of heart today as we read your word, and, and feet that are ready to respond to your word as they hear it, O oh God, and as they hear you speaking to them personally and individually as your word is applied by the power of God. I pray that you would grow us, Lord, in strength and grace and the knowledge of your word today and that you would help me and sustain me as I endeavor to preach your word faithfully. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I bet you didn't expect to see me up here again so soon, as I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, uh, so I was surprised myself. I wasn't expecting to be here, but it's an honor, as always, and a privilege to be before you today. And as I was called to preach, 
Uh, this message, uh, given the time and the need and the constraints that I had to work with, it really it was with no little struggle that I sought to find a passage that was appropriate to, uh, to preach from. And then I remembered one of my conversations with Brother Jeffrey. Um, if you ever talk to Brother Jeffrey or you study the Word with him, he's always got an application from the Beatitudes. He's always leading me there and exhorting me from there. So that's where I ended up today, by the grace of God, in the Beatitudes. So that's where we are here. And uh, what a great task to teach and a great wonder to learn the depth of each one of these Beatitudes. Each one is truly a sermon in itself. Um, however, in our time together today, we will only be looking at two of them briefly, quite briefly. And I also ask for your forgiveness of the brevity of this sermon. I was trying my hardest, uh, which is very hard for me to put something together which is intelligible uh, something that is faithful and practical on very short notice upon hearing that Amelia was going to be absent. And so I'm thankful for your, mace, your mercy and your grace towards me as always. And uh, with no further ado, we will go ahead and get started in our message today. And I would say, just to start, I truly would love to, to teach a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, our time together today only allows just a, a brief and refreshing overview of the introduction. As you know, the Beatitudes make up what is really just a preface of what St. Augustine coined the Sermon on the Mount. And further, as you will notice, the word Beatitude is not found in your text. It's not found in your English translation. In fact, after a little research, I learned that the word Beatitude is a word that is used in the Vulgate. And is derived uh, from the Latin word beatitudo. And from there it was carried over to our current passage as an appropriate title for the introduction of the following discourse. In the Vulgate specifically, we find this word being used in Romans 4.6. And uh, Romans 4.6 in our Bible says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing, here the Vulgate uses beatitudo or beatitude. On the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So you can say, just as David also speaks a beatitude, is uh, to get the gist of what he's saying and uh, the context and the meaning of it. Or he speaks of the beatitude or the blessing. And it is from this context that the word is derived, and it is in this use of the word that will play into the meaning of the passage that we are uh, studying today. The word in the Greek for blessed, which you will find, there are eight beatitudes which start with this word in the Greek, which is makarios, which basically means a kind of favor and happiness and a, a goodness to be envied and carries with it the idea of distinctiveness, exclusiveness, and a certain uniqueness uh, as it concerns the person with whom its benefits are found and experienced. Makarios, blessed. And one of the chief qualities of each of these pronouncements of blessings or of each of these beatitudes uh, is that they each have a double intention and are normally comprised, as you will see, of two clauses. We see the beatitudes used in the two clauses this way. The first being a declaration of blessing upon an individual, a specific individual, 
or person who is marked by or possesses these particular characteristics which are affirmed by Christ. The second being the basis or the reason for such a declaration of blessedness. The word blessed could also be expressed as, oh, the bliss, oh, the bliss, which indicates an, an ever-abiding quality of present pleasantness or something of a deep-seated peace of a soul that is inwardly satisfied with God. And interestingly, a close look at the Beatitudes, as you really can't see this from your Bibles if you're reading from an English translation, is that the Greek manuscript shows that these verses do not include any verbs. You will not find the word are in the Greek next to or following the word blessed. You will only find what in the Greek says, makarioi, hoi, patochoi, topanumati, blessed, the poor in spirit, blessed. And the purpose for this is to indicate what kind of rhetoric the speaker is engaged in. And so Matthew is not merely recording statements made by Christ on what we are to do, but exclamations made by Christ on who we are, on what we are. And so if we go back to the passage in Romans and plug in this phrase, oh, the bliss, and take out only the preceding verb, you will then be able to feel and seal the weight and sense of this word, blessed. And so as we just mentioned in Romans 4, 6, and read that David is here pronouncing blessings or beatitudes on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, so also does he here continue in verses 7 and 8 of this passage in Romans, chapter 4, when quoting from Psalm 32, and he extols the happy position of those who have found favor with God. And so we see this, this word and it's with this new and synonymous expression, and so we could read that text like this. Oh, the bliss of those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Oh, the bliss of the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This bliss or blessing characterizes the present inward reality of peace that is derived and received from God's offer and pardon and forgiveness of sin. Their life of lawlessness has been forgiven and no longer exists, and their new life, which is in submission to the rule and reign of God, in God's kingdom, consists now of a lively faith, a brokenness of spirit and a thankfulness of heart, and a joyful willingness to obey all that Christ commands. And Jesus said that he came so that we might have life and life more abundantly. And so these are present blessings in which we are about to embark on that are to be enjoyed by every Christian here and now, although we admit and acknowledge the fact that these blessings do not reach their fullness until hereafter. Until hereafter. And so we see here for the Christian, what are these 
pronouncements of blessings mean. You'll see, you'll notice uh, throughout the Gospels and really throughout the whole Bible that God is faithful uh, to render curses and these graces or blessings to his people. So what does a blessing mean when you hear it? And the same for curse, when God curses something or he curses behavior in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, he curses people. What does that mean? And we can say for now, in the present, the fullness of our destinies has not been fulfilled. You are not where you're going to be for all eternity. Though you are going there and your date is set, the judgment before you is, uh, is already sovereignly uh, it is the time, is, is God is faithful to fulfill it. You will be there when God has called you and has appointed for you to be there. And so these blessings, these things are really a present indicator of what is to be fulfilled in the future. And so I would say this, Jesus' pronouncements of blessing or blessedness are a present foretaste of eternal of a heavenly inheritance and joy and is quite contrary to its opposite for the unbeliever and for the one who does not have faith in Christ, does not believe in Christ, who still lives in sin, whose heart has not been awakened to God. There's blessedness for the Christian, but opposite for the unbeliever are the pronouncements of judgment and woes, which are the present foretastes of the eternal misery of a quickly hastening and irreversible judgment. That is what those are when Jesus pronounces those. You see, he pronounces a, a state of blessedness, and there's also a state of, of judgment and real danger in which God pronounces curses on an individual and on a lifestyle. And so keep in mind also that this whole discourse was in the context of a backslidden generation that had completely lost its way and was living in darkness. Jesus came not to teach anything new in his sermon, but to draw his audience's attention to himself, to himself, to his authority, and his power to give life to the dead, to shine light into darkness, and to grant sinners access into God's grace. And as we, begin to, as we begin to enter into and discuss these pronouncements of blessings, let us first take notice of their progressive nature and the way that they unfold, because they do do that. Like the fruit of the Spirit, every single one of these beatitudes find their full bloom in the Christian. These are the characteristics of a Christian by the grace of God. And further, at a closer look, one will find that the key to all these stores of blessedness is through the door of the first beatitude. And you'll notice that as we look into this. The first beatitude is the heart which gives life to the rest of the body of the beatitudes. Once a sinner is awakened to the reality of his impoverished soul before God and saved, he is then an heir of all the blessings that flow from the first. 
And so it begins with this link that we begin to work down and admire this chain of divine blessedness. You'll notice in the text, it starts with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That a man acknowledges who he is inside of who God is. And from there on, this man mourns for sin. His heart is molded to the gentleness and, and, and he begins to take the shape and the characteristics that come bloom and f- bloom forth from the Spirit of God within him. He begins to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He begins to be merciful since he's seen that he's been shown mercy. He has a pure in heart and a singleness of devotion to the will of God in his life. He is a peacemaker because Christ has made peace as his mediator And he is also standing in the gap for God on behalf of sinners and is hated by the world. And so we reach our first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there have been many mistakes as to what this first beatitude means. I'm sure you've heard many of them of uh, what, what other interpreters of this verse might have said, but at the first, it's, it's, we should also clear ourselves of making these mistakes um, by highlighting them, by bringing truth to uh, what has been considered to be the false imp- interpretations of these, of these verses. Being poor in spirit has no ties that are directly related to mood or money. Directly related to mood or money. Some have said that this is speaking of the believer's duty to maintain his mind and heart in a state of constant introversion and depression, which ironically results in a life of self-absorption, a life of self-centeredness. Indeed, a man can be occupied with a darkened and downcast mind and be filled with gloomy feelings and busy with a life of morbid introspection and still not know Jesus Christ as his Savior. The same is true for those who condone the opposite view, which believes that this poverty of spirit, this, uh, this uh, poor in spirit, is gained merely at the loss of losing his possessions, these material possessions or properties. But this isn't the point, because you can have, or you can be as poor as you want to be, and still lack this spirit of blessedness, and still lack this spirit of poverty, as we see all around the world, and clearly is not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is here combating are those who are self-deceived, those who are rich in spirit versus those who are poor in spirit, the self-righteous versus the humble, and those who have need of nothing versus those who have need of all things. You remember what our Lord said to the members of the church of Laodicea. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And he says, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. These men were self-deceived. In their own estimate, they were okay. In their own estimate, they were okay. As many of us were before the commandment of God came to us and awakened us and and stirred up the spiritual stupor that we were in. They thought they were okay. 
They didn't know or believe that, their, that the condition of their soul was truly defiled and that they were on the brink of destruction. They didn't know that. They couldn't see their sin and their need for pardon because they were spiritually blind. They could not see. The eyes of their mind and conscience hadn't been opened, which was quite contrary to the case of Adam and Eve, who, after they had sinned, their eyes were opened. Their shame and their nakedness was ever before them. They tried to hide and make a covering for themselves, but it wasn't good enough, and God was not pleased. God was not pleased with their work of trying to make up for their fall as to try to cover up their nakedness. God was not pleased with that. And so at this point, they saw that their schemes had fallen apart. And they saw how poor they really were in themselves. If they were to be saved, they needed God to rescue them and reconcile them and clothe them in his righteousness. And he did. You can take the story of the tax collector and the self-deceived Pharisee who were praying with some distance between one another. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And what's wrong with this picture? Something is dreadfully wrong with this picture. Notice how he came to God. He came to God exalting himself and basically praising his personal evaluation of himself over and against sinners, fallen men. What he couldn't see is that he was exactly like other people. But he was so puffed up with pride that he couldn't admit any of his faults in their midst. He, couldn't, he could only look down his nose at the sins of other people with disgust, but he couldn't see his own. He was blind. He was blind. He had no need. He was rich in spirit. But what about the tax collector? You'll notice a change just in the middle of the story between two people, uh, between the two characters in this story. You'll notice a difference in their approach to God. One is acceptable and one is completely detestable before God. But what about the tax collector? How did he approach God? It says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast. Can you imagine that? He was beating his breast. We have a man who is collapsing under the heaviness of sin as God is pulling back the curtains of his heart, by giving him eyes to see the fountain of pollution that is flowing from his heart. He knows that God demands perfect righteousness, and within him he only has a sink of sin. 
He knows the consequences of the life that he has chose to live and that he must pay the penalty for doing so if he doesn't surrender to God. In himself, he is worthless and has nothing to offer God. He was poor and naked and needy and weak, but hope... Hope caused him to see that if he lays down his weapons of warfare and surrenders his life and puts his faith in God, he will be delivered and saved from his misery. And so in a sense, he cries, Oh God, come quickly and deliver me and make me new. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The next verse, he tells us that this man, he went down to his house justified before God. He was accepted before God. And thus he was welcomed into the kingdom. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God brought him to a place of poorness and, or of, of poverty in his spirit. And this tax collector threw himself upon the savior of saviors and the rock of all ages. And just like that hymn, it goes, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So you must know you are lost before you can be found. And you must see your sin before you can see your Savior. And you must be emptied of yourself before you can be filled with Christ. As John Calvin said, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. The second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. After looking at the first, and now gazing upon the second beatitude, is not the content of these blessings a little strange to you? Coming out of the world of darkness and sin, they really are strange and uh, foreign to the world. You know you're dealing with uh, something that is quite opposite the world when the blessing of God could be translated, happy are the unhappy. That's, that's God's wisdom. He knows what we need. And that's a good indicator that you are no longer in the bounds of the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God by his grace and mercy. And what a foreign concept it is to those who are foreign to God and how attractive it is to those who know God and love God. That is a blessedness to mourn. It says that mourners are blessed persons. But is this true of every mourner? What makes a mourner blessed? Those are good questions. And one thing to remember is the context that we are in. The context that we are in um, in this sermon is talking about the present reality of life lived in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world. 
And so uh, in, 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 in terms of experience, it is altogether separate from what the world knows or experiences. That is what this is talking about. Not mourning in general, but a specific kind of mourning. As we will see, to be sure, in the kingdom of God, those who mourn are blessed because God is there to comfort them. There is no comfort for them that mourn in the world, except that which is offered by God's common grace. Not only is there a difference in comfort for those that mourn, but there is also a difference in content of those that mourn. There's a different substance of those that mourn that the world knows nothing about. They cannot mourn over it. Thomas Watson says, he says, there is a carnal mourning when we lament outward losses. He quotes Matthew 2.18, and he says, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamenting and weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. He says, there are abundance of these tears shed, and we have many who can mourn over a dead child that cannot mourn over a crucified Savior. painfully true. Even in our own culture, you can see this playing out before our eyes, whereas some women used to weep over the death of their children. Uh, the world and a great number of mothers in our world, um, they really can watch thousands of babies who are made in the image of God be disposed of and slaughtered and say nothing about it. But when an animal dies, they are set to mourning. They are set to mourning. It's chaos breaks out. And Romans 1 has never rang more clear. It says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The idolatry of the world. And to be sure, this type of shallow mourning, which sets its, which sets its affections and its obsessions on the world, is, is the opposite of what is right in the eyes of God. For Scripture commands us, in 1 John 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, uh, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and all so its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. In the context of God's kingdom, doing the will of God is exactly what we are to be concerned with and consumed with. The blessing and promise of eternal life is placed on them that are and those that do. Do the will of God. Though we will have many sorrows and, and, and many things during our day-to-day our -day pilgrimage in this world, that is admitted, yet these are not our primary sorrows as it concerns us in this passage. 
John Stott says something similar in that it is plain from the context that those here promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, and their self-respect. It is not the sorrow of loss to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. This is the duty of every Christian, and, on, and, and, and one that some of the choicest saints of God, as well as many that we know here, we're not strangers to. And uh, I wanted to read to you, if I may, two uh, excerpts from the diary of, of David Brainerd. Uh, David Brainerd is a missionary, and he was a dear friend of Jonathan Edwards. Um, he died very young because of disease. Spent most of his time preaching to the Indians and living in environments that kept him in a constant state of sickness. He ended up dying. Uh, I forget the age, but it's either uh, late 20s or early 30s. It might have been 32. But he died of disease, and he died at Jonathan Edwards' house. But I wanted to read to you what does this mourning look like? Blessed are those who mourn. And, um, and really, I wanted to make clear that Christians do mourn for sin. And it's not just those who struggle with sin often, but even those who are severely fighting against sin. Men who were used mightily by God, like, like David Brainerd. I like to use him and and talk about him and his life because he's so brutally honest about his struggles. And he lays it all out. And uh, it's actually, I, I mean, I recommend uh, Jonathan Edwards put this together, but it's The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. And you can go through and read his diary, and I promise you, uh, I, I know most of you are sensitive, I'm a sensitive man, but I know that you'll read that and it'll bring you to weeping, truly. It's, uh, it's just seeing his daily life which was not meant for your eyes. And you know, so you see it on a paper, you know, what, what Brother K-Dub might write in his, uh, in his diary, or, or Chris, or Brother Matthews, whatever they might write, for no one's eyes to see. Brainerd just, he, he puts it out here, and you know, by the grace of God, Jonathan Edwards uh, published it for us. Wonderful. So Thursday, this is, uh, I'm going to read to you one of these. Thursday, November 4th. This is uh, David Brainerd. He says, When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of Him the more insatiable, and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. And the Lord will not allow me to feel as though I were fully supplied and satisfied, but keeps me still reaching forward. And I feel barren and empty and as though I could not live without more of God in me. I am ashamed and guilty before God. Oh, I see that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I do not, I cannot live to God. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. He said, oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. The language, is, the language of it is... 
Then I shall be satisfied when I awake in God's likeness. But never, never before, and consequently I am engaged to press towards the mark day by day. Oh, that I may feel this continual hunger and not be retarded, but rather, rather animated by every cluster from Canaan, from Canaan, to reach forward in the narrow way for the, for the full enjoyment and possession of the heavenly inheritance. Oh, that I may never loiter in my heavenly journey. That was one of his. This next one is a little shorter, May 13, at Weathersfield. He says, Saw so much of the wickedness of my heart that I longed to get away from myself. I never before thought that there was so much spiritual pride in my soul. I felt almost pressed to death with my own vileness. Oh, what a body of death is there in me. Lord, deliver my soul. The grief that is herein described is one's mourning over their sinfulness and the resultant shame that follows because they have disappointed the one who has been most gracious to them. That is why they are mourning. And what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is what separates us from God. Uh, sin brings death into the life of faith. Sin is the traitor that thirsted for the blood of the Son of God, that sold him, that mocked him, that scourged him, that spat in his face, that tore his hands, that pierced his side and pressed his soul and mangled his body, that never left him till he had bound him, condemned him, nailed him, crucified him, and put him to an open shame. Oh, the hideousness of sin. Truly. My friends, can you say that you mourn over sin? Are you sensible to your internal corruption? Can you mourn over sin? Sin is heartbreaking because Jesus is always there and, and to love and to discipline us as our great physician, to throw our hearts upon the surgery table and to do this heart work and to, 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 to heal the wound, to mend the brokenness in us. And it's this love, his love, that causes us to hate sin and cry out with Paul, Wretched man that I am, and who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he adds a rich consolation, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when I think of it and really boil, boil down the cause of my own mourning because of sin, it is because the grace of God that is shown to me in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says the sinner hates his sin and grieves over it because it is, it is an offense to God, but he mourns over it all the more because the same God forgives him, that God is standing there ready to give mercy to you and be gracious to you when you sin. You know that he is faithful if you confess your sin to forgive you of your sin. That is why we mourn over sin necessarily because of the sinfulness of sin, but the God who is ready to receive us when we sin, that God is always there for us.
And furthermore, there's also another aspect that sets the Christian to mourning. These are the sins that directly hinder our communion and relationship with God. It is a glorious thing for the presence of sin to be absent for your, from your life, no doubt, but it is a terrible thing for sin to be present and Christ to be absent from your life. A believer, this is what Owen says, John Owen says, a believer that has gotten Christ in his arms is like one that has found great spoils or a pearl of great price. He looks about him every way and fears everything that may deprive him of it. Riches make men watchful in the actual sensible possession of Christ, in whom all the riches and treasure of God will make men look about them for the keeping of him, that nothing steals him away. You remember, I believe, is Mary who comes to the tomb of Christ, and he says, they have taken my Lord. They have taken my Lord. They have, he's never, he's, he wasn't in the tomb anymore, but they have taken him. And that's exactly what sin does when it is present in your life. It takes Christ away, and it seems that God hides his face from you while you turn your back on him. It is a fearful thing to lose your sensitivity to sin and your sight on the love of God. It truly is. The absence of Christ in a season of sin is unbearable. If you are of God, then you will go searching for Christ, and he will be searching for you. I love this. Uh, the men's study, we went through this book of uh, communion with the triune God by John Owen, and I've never forgotten this, uh, this excerpt from his page, and I wanted to read it. He, he says that, uh, John Owen, he says that men bewail the loss of, what, of, of that whose whole enjoyment they delight in. They hate to lose it. We easily bear the absence of that whose presence is not delightful. That's okay. If we don't enjoy it, it's okay that it's not in our lives. We'll deal with it. And then the state of the believer is discovered when what he enjoys the most is taken from him. When it's gone. When Christ seems absent. And he quotes the Song of Solomon. He says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw you him whom my soul loves? It is night now with the soul, a time of darkness and trouble and affliction. Whenever Christ is absent, it is night with the believer. He is the sun, he is the light. If he go down upon, if he go down upon them, if his beams be eclipsed, if in his light they see no light, it is all darkness with them. It is chaos in the soul, and there begins great mourning in the heart of man when they seek him whom their soul loves and do not find him. The blessedness of this beatitude is that it doesn't end in loss or despair, but comfort, which is the great mercy and wisdom of God is that we don't lose Christ without finding Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be 
comforted. They will be comforted. Those verses from the Song of Solomon don't end with despair either, but they end with comfort. And he goes on to say, It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. And it is the grace of God that melts my heart and causes me to mourn over sin. When Christ is going and seeking lost sheep, he's willing to leave the rest and seek one sheep who has a name, and it's dear to God that he's able to leave the rest and go looking for him. And Christ is the only one who can so powerfully break me down and expose the hiddenness of my sin to the point of tears and mourning, and also the only one whose feet I will lay at as he does it, ever clinging to his nearness and receiving his forgiveness as a sinner who deserves nothing of his goodness. And I praise the Lord for granting me forgiveness from what I've done, but oh, I wait to be delivered, and often with great cries and mourning from what I am. And I'm so grieved by the fact that I can't give the Lord perfect and sinless praise, which is what my spotless lamb desires. It's what that he demands. It's what he deserves, truly. My stomach curls at the inner corruption that still abides within me. Oh, to slip away and be with him, says my soul, as it mourns with great sighs. To die to myself is to be free from sin, but for myself to die is to be free from within. Oh, to be away from the body and present with him. And I would like to end our time with a scripture of praise as we give thanks to God in the presence of one another. I wanted to quote 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, and it says this, Blessed be God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves have been comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And I'm going to end there and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We are so undeserving of your grace. We are undeserving, Lord, of the eyes that you have given us to see our sin. We are undeserving, O oh God, to uh, be able to feel uh, the, the corruptions of our heart, God, those are mercies. Convictions of God are mercies that you, didn't, that you do not give to all people, O oh God. That are not cherished by all men. That do not truly pierce their heart and cry out to you, what, what must we do to be saved? But you give those, Lord, to those whom you love. You set your love and affection on them. You call them and you draw them to yourself, Lord. And we thank you for the grace of allowing us to see our sin and the grace of, of keeping us and sustaining us in a state of sensitivity to our sin, O oh God. And I pray that you would continue to draw us away from the things of this world, that our minds would be entertained with the beauties and excellencies of Christ, 
Um, God, that, that we would do what's pleasing to you because of the grace and the mercy that you have shown us, Lord. You have forgiven us of much, O oh God. You have given us much mercy. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would um, help us, O oh God, to understand and see what depths and, and what links and breadths, O oh God, the depths of your love, I pray that you would help us to see and understand that. And that, that would, in such a way, transform the very way that we live. That that would cause us, O oh God, to cling to you all the more, God. That our grips would be tighter as we come to understand you, Lord. And that you would wean us from our, the, the, the lusts of our flesh and the things of this world and draw us up to yourself, O oh God. Keep our heads and our eyes fixed on the heavens and the things that are above. And it's in your precious Son's name we pray. Amen.